This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Welcome, Colin McFarlane um, from Durham University.、Uh, Colin, just to get us started off, do you want to tell us just a bit about yourself? Sure.、Uh, yeah. Thanks, Ross, and、uh, thanks, Marcus, for doing this.、Uh, so, my name is Colin McFarlane. I'm based at Durham University、uh, in the Geography Department. And my work is、uh, in in urban geography. I'm an urban geographer, and historically, what I've been interested in is mainly the the politics of infrastructure and、uh, housing in in cities, predominantly in the global south. Although I've done、um, research as well in the global north, and increasingly sort of、uh, working across that kind of boundary. Um, and really, I'm interested in inequality and poverty in the city, and how that's politicised and transformed.、Uh, and at the moment, I have、uh, a project which is taking up most of my attention, which is around、uh, urban densities, and that's a project which is funded by the European Research Council.、Uh, we are in year two of four years; just started the second year of that project. And we're working. I'm working with three fantastic postdocs on that project:、um, uh, Hongying Chen, Romit Chowdhury, and Priyam Tripathi, who are all based at Durham.、Um, although at the moment they're in different parts of the world for different reasons, and we have been looking at densities in predominantly Asian cities and the ways in which those densities are lived, experienced, perceived. So that's been, you know, what I've been doing. Most of my work on lately,、um, and there's a couple of other projects as well which connect uh, uh, to some of those themes that I've been working on as well. Okay, great. Thanks, Colin. We'll, obviously, we'll come back to some of、uh, the themes that you've mentioned.、Sure. Um, but um, so, how, how have, thus far have you experienced the、uh, the COVID nineteen situation, and how, in particular, have you tried to to make sense of it?、Uh, In an urban kind of way. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess like all of us, it's been,、um, you know, we're trying to get our heads around it. So it's been a kind of process of of trying to make sense of it in a sort of personal level, isn't it? You know, we're all sort of dealing with this crisis as it unfolds, and we all have friends and families who are differently affected by it. So there's a kind of very visceral connection that we're all differently experiencing.、Um, and then there's a sort of intellectual question, and these two things sometimes are. Are moving in different directions.、Um, as as an urbanist,、uh, I've been taken aback really by the the ways in which our cities have transformed in such a short time. It's been quite extraordinary, hasn't it? And the spectacle of of this kind of emptying out of especially city centres where you're so、uh, accustomed to the kind of hustle and bustle of well density, I suppose.、Um, so I've been really struck by. Um, given that we have been working on high densities、uh, in this project,、uh, the kind of this kind of de-densification, arguably perhaps the largest, is it the largest de-densification that's ever happened in in urban history?、Mm-hmm. I can't imagine. There's many other,、uh, um, you know, perhaps the war,、uh, um, but at times when、uh, cities were so drastically emptied out, it, I mean, they're public places, of course, not their. Residential quarters, and there's lots of variations to this process of de-densification. So I, I've been sort of seeing that as a kind of spectacle, like we all have, really. And then what I think the urban kind of question for me 
um, and this very much is a question of density, I think, is that that has provoked um, not just for me, but I think for many of us, uh, and certainly this is also in the media as well, uh, it's provoked a kind of almost a kind of metaphysics of of the city and and urban life because what you're sort of looking at here there's emptying out right of the city and and there's a kind of okay on the one hand you can say well there's a kind of kind of a, a weird kind of um, fascination that sort of predominantly middle class kind of people might have with this emptying out of spaces where they used to hang about and get coffee and I can sort of see the critique there and I've read critiques of that kind of but nonetheless, the images and the videos and the drone shots of these vast cities completely empty has been an incredible spectacle. And I think for me, partly, that raises a question about how fundamental uh, the presence of busyness to certain kinds of urban environments, especially city centres, is to how we understand the city and how we understand urban life. And that's where I think it's almost been a kind of metaphysical kind of spectacle that we've been experiencing there. And it's prompted like a whole set of debates about um, about density, which has taken on lots of different forms. So, um, so you've got this human tragedy unfolding and you've also got these kind of debates happening which are kind of curiously disconnected to some of that. And that has been... Um, a difficult kind of thing to process. Uh, I found that found that quite a challenge trying to get my head around some of that. Yeah, I, I take your point exactly. With this, particularly this, this this mix of the um, the kind of the personal and uh, the emotional and and this need uh, uh, to kind of make sense of it in a kind of in a more kind of scholarly type way, and, and the kind of contradictions uh, that that emerge with that sometimes, or the overlaps and the sense that. Um, certain things might not be exactly the right things to be doing at the moment. Um, but if going be, beyond that a little bit, I suppose you mentioned density in particular is something that you, that you are working on uh, uh, at the moment. Um, uh, it's hard to say, of course, we are, we are speculating a bit, but um, mm. do you think, could you go a little bit further? Uh, how, how, is, how have your ideas or the ongoing research about density uh, been confronted by this situation? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, there's been a lot of attention, hasn't there, and debate around density in the coronavirus pandemic, you know, for, really from the start. Uh, and that's been kind of extraordinary, you know, uh, to, to see that unfold. I think there's several different elements to this. It, you know, the kind of concept and the idea has been pulled in so many different directions. But there are a couple of things, I guess, that stand out for me at the moment, at least, you know, caveating it caveat that with the fact that this is a very rapidly changing and unfolding situation. Um, one is that it's, you know, it's pretty clear that uh, uh, we are seeing um, how the geography of the virus's impact has intensified the relationships between inequality and vulnerability. And density certainly kind of has a role there, uh, um, you know, so it's very clear. Uh, that lower income groups are much more vulnerable to infection, hospitalisation and death. Uh, uh, and we see that as closely linked to, to race and to ethnicity. Uh, so that's something that's become... So what's, what I think has become really clear is that it's not density per se that matters in relation to the crisis, but particular kinds of densities and particular kinds of places in this kind of differentiated uh, experience of density has become increasingly clear. And there's more and more evidence across the global north-south divide of how this virus is exacerbating 
inequalities and the kind of role of densities in that. So that's one. Um, but there's also there's also been a kind of powerful sort of visceral connection that's been repeatedly made between density and the scale of the virus. Um, so you've seen a debate across mainstream and social media amongst urban policy, think tanks, uh, a whole range of groups, often quite a passionate debate uh, about about density and transmission. So we might think, for example, in the case of New York, someone like Governor Andrew Cuomo, who's tweeted, I think, on March 22nd, there is density, there's a density level, in, I'm reading this tweet here, there's a density level in New York City that is destructive. Um, and he's spoken quite a bit, actually, Cuomo, about, about kind of, you know, the risk of high densities in ways that are kind of rather unfortunate. Um, and other voices uh, from all kinds of perspectives have made similar kinds of arguments. You know, this idea that density is kind of the enemy, uh, that it carries, that densely populated areas carries high risks because, uh, you know, the public transit system is crowded or the pavements are packed and, you know, pointing to, to Madrid or Milan or New York as kind of exemplars of this kind of, uh, of their case. You know, look at how density is exacerbating this. And it's clear that, you know, that is a massive oversimplification to attribute this kind of special role for high densities in the spread of the virus. And, you know, that debate has been unfolding in interesting ways. So we're seeing, for example, people pointing to cities in Southeast Asia, especially Hong Kong, Seoul, Singapore, uh, Taipei, um, uh, pointing out that they have had relative success, relative success in controlling the virus, at least for the time being, uh, which is due to, um, a whole set of combination of fa uh, factors, you know, so you're thinking about um, testing, contact tracing, you're thinking about uh, investment in public health infrastructure, investment in sanitation right across the public realm, including in, you know, transit systems. Um, uh, uh, also the memory of, of the 2003 SARS outbreak and how that kind of, how that kind of meant that people changed the sort of daily practices in response to, to kind of public health mes messages. So there's all kinds of ways in which you know, people are countering this idea that density is the problem. There's also emerging research about how uh, uh, social interaction and mobility can often be more important than density. There's emerging research, as I said, around the role of social differentials, like class, race, ethnicity, age, and health, and how they all intersect with density. So what that's given us is, is a picture of density as, on the one hand, this kind of politicised football in the debate. You know, it's not my fault, it's density's fault. And on the other hand, this kind of complex, granular, emergent picture, which is very interdisciplinary in terms of the contributing voices, that's showing that density, yes, of course, plays a role in the pandemic, but in very particular ways, in very complex, relational, situated ways, and in ways which is radically socially differentiated and exacerbating inequalities and vulnerabilities in different places. It's, uh, it's fascinating, um, uh, the examples of this, this politicization of, of, of density. Uh, um, is, is it as simple as saying that in some cases, perhaps in the case of New York, um, this, the mentioning of density is, is a kind of displacement of of blame in a way it's like it's almost like the city's fault you know there's not much we can do about that because you know this is the kind of urban form we have we have lots of people living close together is it, is it as simple as that or, or or is there something else going on there yeah um i think there's i think it's one of the things that struck me throughout the whole crisis so far is that people do want 
to blame people, don't they? Um, and uh, people sort of reach out for blame and, and political officials trying to manage this crisis, um, perhaps understandably, are trying to communicate a story which which shows that, you know, they are not, they do not have a kind of authoritative sovereign power over this kind of microbial realm. And so there might be an element then with people like Como to kind of suggest, look, this is not this is not my doing. We're doing what we can here uh, in the face of this uh, uh, unique set of geographies that we have in front of us in, in New York. Uh, so there might be an element of that. Um, but I think the politics comes through much more strongly in relation to inequalities and vulnerabilities and to the extent to which states are able or are willing to protect those who are most vulnerable to infection, hospitalisation. Um, I mean, some of the statistics that are emerging are, are kind of astounding. I, mean, I don't know if you saw the piece in the Washington Post from a couple of weeks ago which showed that in Milwaukee, uh, African-Americans, which are about sort of 25% of the population or something like that, have, account for about 70% of the people who have died. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, there was a piece here in the UK um, uh, just recently um, showing that um, uh, those in lower incomes were six times less likely to be able to work from home and three times more likely to less likely to self-isolate, right? Um, and, and, and there's this kind of constant kind of production of, of kind of more and more evidence here. There was a piece by the, the New Policy Institute showing that overcrowded, so-called overcrowded multi-generational households, so this is within the densities within the households, in, especially in London and Birmingham, uh, 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 was was we're, we're experiencing much higher rates of the virus than less dense, less uh, crowded homes and neighbourhoods in England. And this, of course, is also a story of often of race and ethnicity and class, uh, where people are forced to share uh, um, all sorts of things. You know, um, kitchens, bathrooms, uh, uh, packed neighbourhoods, and different ways that haven't had the proper investment for many, many years. And and so the extent to which governments really are intervening in, in, in those neighbourhoods to support those communities, uh, well, it's clear that there's not enough going on there. Um, I mean, you know, one of the things I know a little bit, um, although I haven't been working there as much as I used to, is, is Mumbai in India. And uh, I've been following a little bit some of the stories there. There was there's an organisation organization we know there, a non, non-governmental organization called uh, Yuva, Youth for Unity and Voluntary Action, and they've been working in you know, so-called slums, low-income neighborhoods in Mumbai, and the ways in which you know, day laborers, street vendors, domestic workers, the people who keep the city going most of the time have just been kind of abandoned and left to their fate. Millions of people in, of course, one of the richest cities in India, uh, Mumbai. Um, uh, left to left to kind of cope uh, often with you know some state support like enhanced production to ration stores, but nothing near enough uh, for people who effectively live hand to mouth oftentimes and don't have any savings, and who are now you know having their livelihoods sort of removed from them and living in very dense neighbourhoods often where you cannot of course isolate. It's impossible if you're sharing water and toilet resources and you know public toilets and so on and you're having to negotiate narrow lanes with um lots of people you have to go out to buy food uh, uh you can't possibly sort of isolate and there's, there's one neighborhood 
uh, Rafiq Nagar, where we've been working in the density project, and Priyam Tripathi, who I mentioned earlier, one of the postdocs, has been working there uh, uh, quite a bit uh, until this happens, uh, this virus outbreak. And, you know, in that neighbourhood, there are areas of that neighbourhood where life expectancy is 39 years old. You know, it's in the late 30s. Um, and part of the reason for that is because people deal with outbreaks of all kinds all the time, you know, in addition to the kind of routine illnesses, you know, diarrhea and sickness from the water supply uh, uh, not being up to standard. There's also outbreaks, for example, of tuberculosis, uh, uh, which um, is often multi-drug resistant tuberculosis and which can kill uh, uh, lots of people uh, very quickly. So, so there's this, this kind of idea of exposure density, which you hear a lot about at the moment, you know, that some groups are more exposed to, to illness and disease than others. Uh, uh, so rather than kind of thinking about density as an abstraction, it's a kind of, it's something which is situated and relational and differentiated by these social vectors. Exposure density is, is much higher for these groups. And if you're saying to, to, these, to people in those neighbourhoods, look, you've got to isolate, not, not because two months ago you had a TB outbreak, which was very serious, but because there's a, there's a new outbreak of a new disease which is affecting the middle classes and the elites. And now you've got to isolate, right? Uh, and have your livelihood removed and perform the impossible, which is stay in your home 24-7. It seems to me that is a political, we have to see that as a political act. And that is not some kind of neutral, kind of like uh, uh, sort of management of urban governance, you know, of, of a virus. There's a politics in saying, previously we left you to deal with these viruses now we're telling you you have to isolate, but we're not going to provide the support infrastructures that we know you need, uh, whilst the middle classes isolate in their homes a couple of miles down the street. You know, that, that, that is a politics, I think. Do you, do you have any sense of how the situation is uh, unfolding in, in that neighbourhood that you're talking about uh, in Mumbai? Um, well, I mean, we haven't, obviously we're not there, and we, we kind of follow a little bit... Um, Uh, some of the stories that Yuva, this NGO and other NGOs, um, post on their websites uh, um, and try to kind of keep up to date a little bit with some of their campaigns. So, for example, Yuva themselves, they launched a campaign called Together We Can, and this was to reach out to vulnerable households, particularly the most vulnerable in, in neighbourhoods uh, like Rafik Nagar. Um, so this is people who are, you know, who are begging for a living, um, people who are, you know, rag pickers, waste recyclers who are making a living off the large garbage ground in northeast Mumbai, the DNR garbage ground, which Rafiq Nagar is, it, it kind of juts up against that garbage ground. Uh, people who normally be working in hotels or uh, housekeeping staff or you know, domestic servants and so on, and they've been trying to get kind of um, sort of food and uh, um, basic support. Into, into those houses, especially those where they might, or, 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 or to the homeless, especially those who are, um, you know, ill and who have to kind of, or be, you know, who can't go about as much as they used to. Uh, and also trying to provide food for like migrant workers. Um, uh, there's been quite a lot of lobbying that they've been doing with the municipality to try to improve provisions to sort of ration stores, for example, um, people who haven't, be, haven't been getting rations uh, because of the lockdown and the kind of impacts of the lockdown in the city. Um, and there's kind of, you know, the stories 
like that all over India and groups who are doing this work all over India and I'm sure all over the world. I mean, you know, there's examples that um, I've read in places like Manila, uh, uh, Karachi, and I'm sure we all have, right, of, of, you know, groups coming together, communities, non-governmental organisations supporting one another with food and resources, but it's often quite desperate stuff. I mean, I, 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 I was in touch with one NGO in, in Mumbai um, uh, who have been operating for a very long time, and the, the, one of the kind of senior figures in the NGO said uh, in an email you know, lately that um, that she's never seen anything like it. You know, just the sheer scale of, of fear and the, the kind of precipice which so many people are on, you know, the, the, the kind of shift sudden shift into the most extreme poverty where, you know, questions about food, food and water and uh, basic security, you know, your house, your entire livelihood, all of that is up in the air in a way that for many people at that scale, they've never quite seen. So the, these kind of stories are are um, really, uh, well, they're really scary, aren't they? And they're quite and they're extremely depressing. And of course, they're replicated in so many different places. I wonder if you could give us maybe some some insights about the opportunities and threats for reconfiguring our urban way of living. I think w yeah. we can all be very certain that we won't go back to normality after all of this. Um, and uh, Arundhati Roy, um, as uh, as you might have read famously you spoke about the crisis as a portal into a new world how how what is your take on this yeah um it's a really good question and there's, there's quite a lot being so you know debated and lots of people are writing about this uh at the moment um about these kind of the possibility for this to produce something new and i think it's true that uh in places where this Uh, virus and its uh, the response to it in places where the, the the temporality of it is is long lasting, which is not everywhere. I mean, it's a very uneven global geography in terms of how this virus has already and will in the future impact different parts of the world. Um, but if you're in a place where the impact is quite long lasting, um, uh, uh, then what's happening is that there's all sorts of new routines, new habits, new structures being put in place. At the same time, I think there has been, as I was saying at the start, a kind of uh, igniting of a whole set of actually quite long, long-term politicised debates about the role of density in the city and the, and the question of how we, how we live together. And there's all kinds of other, beyond density, all kinds of other um, uh, questions about urban life and city living, which have been debated and experimented with, explored in different kinds of ways. So, so the longer the, the kind of crisis goes on, the more opportunity that there is, I guess, for both progressive and less progressive uh, tendencies to become embedded. Uh, um, and I do think that it's probably true to say that in those places, it's likely that things won't be the same, uh, at least in the sort of short to medium term um, uh, uh, ever again, or beyond, beyond that into the longer term. I think there's, um, so temporality matters, but I think there's a lot, if you look at the debates that are going on, um, there's quite a lot of questions that are being raised about where things might change, which uh, you can kind of see a potential accumulative effect, right? A kind of accumulative effect of various different processes 
which might in and of themselves be quite small, but which could, taken together, reshape sort of urban geographies, urban practices, and certainly potentially reshape the patterns of densification, de-densification, re-densification, some of the stuff that you know I've been interested in, some of the work I've been doing lately. Um, so, for instance, there's a whole bunch of domestic and neighbourhood practices which are changing. Um, we've talked about sort of civic activism and mutual aid of different kinds, and they, I think, will have a longer afterlife. Uh, um, but there's all sorts of more mundane things. I mean, new patterns of working from home, predominantly middle class for sure, but if that if that becomes a significant group of people, uh, then that becomes a kind of potential force uh, of change in the city, new path. People are spending more time in the local neighbourhood, so be, there's new there's new patterns of walking and cycling going on because people can't go very far, and it might be that those become demands placed on cities for more cycle lanes, that kind of thing. Perhaps you might see the deepening of attachments to open spaces and public spaces um, as a result of people spending more time in those spaces. I read one piece actually; it was in the Scotsman, I think arguing that we might see uh, renewed calls for garden cities and a kind of renewed garden city movement uh, after this, partly coming out of, of people spending more time uh, looking and seeking out open spaces in their neighbourhoods. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of changes around travel. You know, the, you know, it might be that for a while, at least people are more nervous about things like public transport and using and use private cars more often. It might be that people become more anxious about crowds in the city uh, to come back to, to density. Um, it might be that people spend much more time doing online shopping rather than street level shopping, which could have implications for you know a whole economy of street level shops, which are already struggling before this crisis and frees up a whole bunch of space in city centres for other things as shops start to, to close. And then there's things like tourism. Will we see a reduction in tourism? Will we see a reduction in tourism to high density places. Um, you know, uh, one of the debates going on at the moment is around universities and colleges. So will we see the, the production of much more online teaching and learning uh, in universities? And will that become embedded uh, beyond the crisis in ways that reduces the number of students on campus? And we know that students um, have been a big driver of, of real estate markets in a lot of cities, right? So if you've got less students on campus, less students in the center, less student accommodation potentially, um, you know, all of this, I guess what I'm saying is, in and of themselves, many of these are kind of fairly small shifts, but cumulatively they could add up to, for example, changing geographies of land and housing costs. You might see, you know, sort of de-densifications of parts of, of more central areas and, and, and the densification or redensification of, of of kind of more suburban or peripheral areas or areas way beyond the city, um, that, that might be one kind of consequence. And it might be that city authorities then find that actually city centre land is, for a time at least, a little bit uh, more available and perhaps cheaper for things like affordable, affordable homes. Um, so there's all kinds of, you know, some of the mutual aid groups there could be kind of avenues for those groups to continue their lives afterwards in those kind of central areas where perhaps the dominance of of, of shops and shopping kind of gives way to, to, to kind of more space for other kinds of activities. You know, these, these so there could be some progressive sort of possibilities and some of these iterative changes as they kind of accumulate up into something larger. I think this, obviously with the suspension of um, kind of normal life, uh, you, you, 
all these questions are raised and uh, all these kind of things that we've taken for granted uh, uh, from a privileged position, uh, particularly, um, are, are now questioned. And uh, I think we obviously we don't know. Everyone has their own kind of questions about, uh, uh, and almost like wishes how things might develop into um, uh, as we go through this into into the future. And um, I mean, just thinking, we spoke to Julianne Boudreau last week um, about. Uh, the situation and her new book, uh, Global Urban Politics, where she argues about this urban logic of action and how that's um, a, a kind of counterpoint to a state-dominated uh, um, or a state-led uh, form of action and uh, uh, how that was playing out in the situation uh, that's uh, unfolding. Because you know, in some ways it does obviously seem like the the, the state, the nation state, has has returned and uh, um, well, not uh, it's certainly. Taking, trying to take control of the situation. And uh, one interpretation that she provided us with was that, um, of course, the state has returned and the state is, is making these claims, and uh, uh, but the, the situation is still kind of s- slipping out of its grasp. Uh, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, it's not controllable and sovereignty is never complete. Um, I wondered if you have any uh, ideas on that kind of, that kind of issue in relation to her, to her work or uh, or just more generally? Sure, sure. Well, I think it's really important. I mean, I think one of the, I think the role of the state in all of this is uh, fascinating and rapidly changing. And uh, there is um, a likelihood, I think, that we will see calls for a bigger state that is far more interventionist um, post-crisis in, in relation in particular to things like uh, uh, let's take labour, you know, um, and there has been one of the kind of elements of this crisis has been a, a kind of cultural re-evaluation of labour uh, in the sense that we see greater attention and focus to forms of labour which have previously not been adequately rewarded. So, you know, healthcare workers, of course, uh, refuse workers, delivery drivers, those in the food sector, a whole range of groups who reproduce urban life um, in all kinds of ways. And calls for kind of a greater sort of um, uh, reward in terms of paying conditions, which I don't think are going to go away um, post-crisis. So that's not just about the state, of course, but it's a lot about the state because many of these are are, are employed through uh, city and state, uh, city state and national state bodies. And there's also going to be, I think, um, uh, much more attention to the role of the state in the public realm. Uh, so, for example, investing in public transit systems, uh, uh, you know, the, the way in which those transit systems are maintained, uh, public housing systems, um, ensuring that they're built to with, with greater quality and attention to social inclusivity. Um, uh, the environment, I've already mentioned, you know, I think open spaces and public spaces, there'll be uh, greater demands uh, for investment in the maintenance and and uh, a condition of those spaces post-crisis, partly because I think a whole set of cultural attachments to those places are currently being renewed, renewed as people um, uh, uh, are forced to hang around their local spaces much more than maybe they used to, uh, um, although, of course, that, that varies depending on age groups and so on. Um, I think that the... the um, there's been... I, mean, I noticed, actually, uh, you know, the, even the Pope recently in his Easter address was calling for universal basic income. And a lot of people have been calling for stuff like that. There's been a lot of voices for universal basic income. Uh, 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 there's been um, 
a lot more talk about uh, basic welfare provisions. Um, so those are kind of a whole bunch of progressive, potentially progressive demands that I think will be made on the state. And that they're going to be made at a time when um, the state is coming out of a severe economic shock. You know, we had this prediction last week in the UK of, by, the, by the OBR that there'd be a, a 35% reduction in GDP. It's like a reasonable worst case scenario. It's kind of astounding levels of financial impact um, on the public purse. And obviously we can debate the ways in which the state chooses to spend its money and tax and redistribute. But that is, whichever way you cut it, that's a massive hit on state finances for a lot of countries, even uh, wealthy countries like the UK. So how that's going to play out uh, when you have perhaps a larger expectation. You know, I don't think there's any appetite in Britain for austerity 2.0. You know, I think that whatever kind of like tolerance uh, um, uh, the middle classes, for example, had of that is probably going. It's probably probably gone. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I think there'll be renewed focus on the state. Of course, the other the flip side of, of a big state is is things like tightening borders, um, extra controls on migration. You know, you can imagine spurious arguments protecting health and reducing virus transmissions by hardening your border. Uh, you know, as far as I can see, there's a huge amount of evidence that hardening your borders would reduce your chances of importing COVID because of the way which incubation, uh, sorry, importing corona because of the way which incubation works. But but you might see those kinds of claims. You might also see um, states becoming accustomed to the kind of authoritarian powers that they've been using during this crisis and seeking to impose forms of control and movement and other types of activities um, uh, post-crisis. We know from history that technologies invented for so-called exceptional moments sometimes linger um, in different ways, and I think you know some states and some parts of the world are probably more vulnerable to to kind of taking on those types of technologies post crisis than others, um, you, you know for sure. So so you know the, the role of the state there will have also a big impact on on the shape of cities. Uh, you know all of these kind of issues I've just discussed will also play into the future of urban densities, who lives where, and what kinds of conditions, the nature of the housing and everyday life and labour conditions and so on. Uh, so we're in for a kind of, I think, a fascinating, deeply, deeply politicised ride with the state. And I, I do think that the kind of left-right division will shift there. You know, So in the UK context, um, the Conservatives are very likely to position themselves as some kind of one-nation uh, um, government in a time of post-crisis, you know, trying to unify the country and uh, even before the crisis, Boris Johnson, as Prime Minister, was already talking about levelling up this language he uses. Uh, now, of course, we can unpick that strategy and its limits and uh, selectivities in all kinds of ways, but I don't think he's going to abandon that kind of logic and that kind of discourse that the Conservatives will seek to position themselves as as a kind of big spending, big investment uh, party. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out politically um, in terms of the left-right debate here, whether there's a new consensus emerging around the role of the state and what it can achieve. Yeah, thank you, uh, Colin. I'd be curious if you could maybe towards the end uh, tell us what, how you see the role of urban research, academic urban research, um, in responding to this moment of urgency. What are we being called to as urban researchers right now? Well, uh, but, I mean, it's a very interesting question, Marcus. I mean, there is, there is, um, 
you know, the, there are all kinds of um, unequal uh, uh, and urgent questions uh, that face those of us in urban studies, um, urban geography in my own case, um, all the time. And they don't sort of go away when a crisis like this kind of happens. So um, I certainly don't think that, you know, that the idea that everybody should turn to focusing on the urban kind of consequences of the coronavirus is a kind of reasonable kind of argument. There's all kinds of issues that remain and will remain kind of vitally important um, and which don't necessarily have a great deal to do with the coronavirus, even if they are in some ways affected by it. Um, but it's it's interesting because I've been a bit torn, as I've seen at the very start, about, about the kind of what to what to kind of say about this whole thing because, you know, on the one hand, it's a personal crisis for all of us. We all know people who are we're worried about for all kinds of reasons. Um, uh, um, and, you know, one doesn't want to turn this into some kind of academic endeavour, you know, like this is a kind of academic curiosity. And I have noticed, like, you know, bits of debate on in different places about, about you know, academics kind of like actively writing and producing suddenly kind of quite coherent stories about um, COVID-19 and kind of say, oh, this is kind of weirdly opportunistic and... Um, uh, and perhaps there are cases where people are, you know, using it in that way. But my sense is that that's probably not the case. And the vast majority of academics who are writing about this crisis are doing it because that's what academics always do, right? They see something unfolding and uh, 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 they see a bunch of inequalities and in politics and questions connected to it. And they want to, to kind of try to make sense of it. Um, and they want to try to shift the debate in more progressive directions. And that's all, that's all to the good. It's such a fast-moving kind of situation um, and trying to kind of like respond to it in a way which is um, ethical and kind of useful is, I think, a question we need to be constantly asking ourselves. Um, you know, what, is, what, what are the reasons why we're writing about this this crisis? Why are we engaging with it? And what are the sort of motives there? And what are we doing with the work that we're, we're kind of like articulating in a given context? So I think there's a lot about... Um, I think there's a lot of ethical questions around, um, you know, what we are saying about this crisis, why we're saying it, and when we're saying it, um, uh, that we all need to be collectively kind of asking ourselves. And so I'm, I'm struggling with that as much as anybody else. And, you know, for me, it's this question, particularly of density, because I've been working and thinking on it, on it for the last couple of years, and suddenly find this kind of bizarre situation where lots and lots of people are talking about it, all, you know, and and seeing all these connections to it so there's that um but universities are in a very curious position as well i would say because um of course a lot of universities are going to suffer a very big financial hit um uh, from the crisis and it'll be differentiated of course globally depending on how your universities are funded but for those universities for example in the uk where the majority of funding is coming through tuition fees um, both domestic and international students, if you're seeing suddenly a big reduction in funding to universities, then actually what's going to happen over the next few years is quite a significant squeeze, potentially, um, in some places, on, on research, on the capacity to, you know, to adequately give time to research in order to ask questions about anything, let alone uh, uh, the coronavirus and its responses and legacies. 
so I think there's quite a, I think there's going to be quite a, a, um, a difficult couple of years ahead, certainly for British universities, as they try to protect um, uh, space for for work that will respond to this. I'm sure we'll see a lot of research funding from the government uh, going into different parts of the world, going into the responses uh, and rebuilding uh, through, uh, through, for example, through the research councils. But whether there is capacity in the universities to focus on it, I think will depend very much on how universities themselves try to balance the books, what the government response is in different parts of the world. You know, a lot of that is is really up in the air. So the political economy of the higher education sector will will have a direct impact on the kinds of work that we're able to do, uh, not just on this, but on any on all kinds of issues. I think. So that's a bit of a rambling answer, Marcus. Thank you. Very insightful answer. Very wise answer. Thank you, Colin, for this uh, great conversation. Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.